UBC Church family. We trust you're all doing well and good spirits. Uh, hopefully this shelter-in-place order will soon end and we can gather once again as a body of Christ as we're accustomed to do. In the meantime, we're attempting to make the best of our situation, uh, continuing to provide you with opportunities to uh, stay in touch with, with each other as well as receive the vital teaching from the scriptures that we all need for us to grow spiritually as the body of Christ. Well, here is Ken Saragusa now to catch us up on some uh, brief announcements and then read our scripture for us. He'll be reading out of Psalm 86. Ken? Well, good morning, GBC family and friends. Welcome to uh, this Sunday morning's uh, worship time. Uh, today is April 26th, and so glad you're going to be part of our worship this morning. A couple brief announcements before we get started. Um, as usual, uh, Tuesday, ladies, uh, you'll still continue to meet on Zoom at 7 o'clock, and you will be sent the information in an email uh, so that you can connect. Uh, also, Wednesday nights, we had a good turnout this last Wednesday night, about 12 people, um, for Steve's study through the book of Ecclesiastes, which will continue again um, through the book. Uh, but Steve will be posting the message prior to our Zoom meeting at 7.30. Uh, so if you have a chance to go there uh, during the afternoon beforehand to see the message, uh, that would be great. Also, Thursday morning, ladies, continue the prayer time at 8.30. And again, it's a, a Zoom connection, so that information will be sent to you in the email. Um, just one other announcement. Uh, a great brother, friend of ours, uh, Happy Grant, uh, the Lord took him home this past week. Uh, Happy has been part of our Grace Bible Church family for over 40 years, and uh, we are saddened uh, by his departing, but we're thankful uh, as he knows the Lord and in his presence. So continue to keep uh, Vicki uh, Grant and the family in prayer uh, during this difficult time, and uh, I know that they will covet those prayers uh, from you. Um, but we're thankful that uh, our brother Happy uh, spent so much time here at Grace serving um, and giving uh, to this community. Uh, we're grateful for that. Um, so keep them in prayer as this week progresses. Well, this morning I'm going to be reading out of Psalm 86 as an encouragement uh, to all of us as we look forward to the next week coming. Uh, it talks about God's great steadfast love, uh, and it's Psalm 86. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, 
abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, no, are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth until my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of shale. Lord, thank you so much that you are a comforty God, an all-wise God, a strengthening God, an all-powerful God. And Lord, as we go through you these next, this next week, uh, Father, may we submit ourselves to your loving hand, your steadfast love, and your guiding grace. That all those, Lord, who are searching and hoping, uh, may they find rest in you, Lord. And to those who don't know you, I pray, Father, that they would cry out to you. Because their only hope is in you. And Lord, we are so thankful uh, that we have your, the truth of your word. And Father, that you are God that hears our cry, a sincere cry from our heart. So thank you again, Lord, for this time as we look forward to the message from Steve. That, Father, that you would encourage us through your words uh, that we may share those with others. Give us the peace and understanding through the power of your spirit that you would be lifted up in our presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Steve. Thank you, Ken. Well, this morning we're going to find ourselves back in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll be looking at the model for Christian leadership, the model for Christian leadership. We're going to see how Paul sets forth his right as an apostle, as a minister of the gospel of Christ, and his entitlement as an apostle. Um, if you've been with us for any time period, so we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, we left off in early March, and now we're back in chapter 9. But you'll remember that the Corinthian church was more concerned with I than we. They were focused very much on themselves. They thought of themselves individualistically rather than collectively. And because of that, they felt no real responsibility for one another as the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And as a result of that, they, they consider their freedoms, their liberty in Christ, which we do have. Uh, we saw that in chapter 8 when we went through that. But they focused on the benefit that they received personally from their rights and their freedoms in Christ, and they failed to really consider the, any repercussions that might, they might have in exercising their freedoms. And so their attitude was more, hey, we have the freedom to do this and we're going to do it. It doesn't matter if it offends somebody or not. And so that's not a very biblical way to handle our liberty in Christ. And they seemed more concerned with their own rights that they had in Christ, no matter how it affected other people. And Paul basically is teaching them that while their freedom is valuable, that we do have liberties in Christ, the Bible tells us that, um, our liberty in Christ was a right that we had because of grace. Uh, 
And those freedoms, those liberties, were not more important or more valuable, you might say, than the gospel itself. And so Paul gives us this principle in his own life. He, he draws illustrations in this chapter from his own life. And he begins to share with us uh, personal applications of how this principle applies to him. He basically is telling us as Christians we should be able to disregard our, our rights and our liberty in Christ eagerly when we need to do so for the purpose of the gospel. The gospel is the greater good here and for the betterment of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it, we see this principle back in chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. We looked at this last time, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And the idea was, well, they were eating meat that was sacrificed to the pagan gods, and some Christians didn't have a problem with that. Other Christians did because of their background. And the Corinthians were saying, well, it's our right to do it. Who cares if it offends anybody? And Paul had to tell them, communicate to them, that's not the right attitude to have. You know, you can be right, you can have truth on your side, but you can share that truth in a very uncompassionate, unloving way, which doesn't do anybody any good. And that's what they were doing. And so Paul pointed out to him later, even in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he said this, remember this, he says in, verse thir in, in chapter 13, verse 1 to 3, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I'm a, a clanging gong or a, a, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So Paul's pointing out that you can have the truth on your side, and you can communicate that truth in a very uncaring, unliving, unloving way. And that's not going to help anybody. We saw very clearly that our, our rights, our liberties end whenever another person, especially a brother or sister in Christ, is offended. We should be the bigger person and forego that right and give in and uh, so we don't offend our brother or sister in Christ. See, if we offend someone who whom Christ has died for, or we cause another brother or sister in Christ to stumble. He shed his blood for that person just like he did us. He did that at a great expense. And so Paul is showing us here in chapter 9, as way of illustration, that he, 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 this was personal to him. See, Paul wasn't a guy who just uh, practiced what he preached. You hear that a lot. Well, you gotta, you got to practice what you preach. But you also have to preach what you practice. That's the other side of the coin. That's probably more important. This wasn't something that just came out of Paul's head. This was something that he was living with. This is something that he lived experientially out in his life. And in verses 1 through 14, we're going to see how he sets forth his right as a minister of the gospel of Christ and what his entitlement as an apostle of Jesus Christ was. And so turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses, 9, uh, verses 1 through 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. You can follow along in your Bibles as I read it here for you. And you'll notice several questions that he asks throughout this text. So you can 
uh, mark those as we go through. Verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord Jesus? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas or Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman would plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we had not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Verse 14, in the same way, the Lord commanded those that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for our salvation through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would clear our minds now in preparation for our time of teaching in your word, your truth. We pray that you would edify us through the power of your word, through the power of the Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. See, we have a society today, unfortunately, that's obsessed to the extreme with their personal rights, with their individualistic rights. Now, with this pandemic of a virus, some of those rights have been lifted. Some of those rights have been taken away. And we realize that, wow, they're precious to us. We enjoy going out and just going wherever we want. If we want to go in a store, we go in a store. We don't have to wait in line, put on a mask, and go through all these, these things. But Paul is coming here in chapter 9, and he's trying to encourage these Corinthians in the church at Corinth to forsake their rights, to forfeit their rights for the sake of others. And he was having a tough time helping them understand. And so he does this by describing his entire ministry. And he, he describes himself as never one who held on dearly to or gripped tightly his own rights. But rather he chose a life of servitude. Rather he chose a life of sacrifice, not privilege. And he chose a life that accommodates others for their good. That's what Paul wants them to see. So let's look at this example 
of the principle that he's already laid down for us. He, he wants them to understand that he is an authentic apostle. So he begins to talk about his authenticity. The first thing that Paul does here is he, he puts proofs forward of his authenticity. That's really what he's concerned with before he even gets describing into describing his rights. He wants to argue for the fact that he is an apostle. Uh, we assume right away that somehow this was disputed amongst the Christians at Corinth. And so he starts off the very first verse there in our text, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord Jesus? Jesus our Lord. Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? And so he begins to understand that they have questioned the fact that he wasn't an apostle at all. And so he answers their accusation with questions, four questions specifically. And they're, they're really rhetorical questions. There's some satire here going on. There's some sarcasm going on. And so he starts off the first question, am I not free? Now remember, the Corinthians used their freedom and their liberty as something to take advantage of other people. They, they thought, they, they saw it as something that was very precious to them. And you know what? They wouldn't give it up, even if it meant offending somebody else. They didn't care. They said, that's my right to do this, and I'm going to do it. And so Paul's coming in here right away, and he's confronting them on that. And he tells them right up front, am I not free? And the point is, is hey, if you're going to defend your liberties, Corinthians, I'm going to defend mine. And one of those liberties is, is I'm free in Christ. And I am an apostle, he says. Now remember, the word apostle simply means, a simple definition of the word apostle means one who is sent with a commission. Someone who's sent with a commission. The Lord sent us into the world to preach the gospel. So therefore, if we're followers of Christ, in that sense, we're apostles, we're sent ones. But here, when he calls himself an apostle, he has a much more detailed definition of apostle, apostle in mind. He's really saying that he's one of the original apostles, one of the 12, you might say. He was classed and esteemed as the apostle to the Gentiles by the Lord himself. So consequently, not only was he free as a Christian, but you can imagine that if he was an apostle, he had certain liberties, he had certain freedoms that even other Christians didn't have. In other words, he had a certain authority, a jurisdiction, you might say, over the church that even you and I don't have today because we're not apostles in this sense. He was a central leader with all the apostles of the early church, and therefore he had responsibilities, but he also had liberties. He also had freedoms. And so what is he saying here? He's trying to communicate to the Corinthians, who were a little thick-headed at times, look, the church doesn't have authority over me. That's really what he's saying. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? As a matter of fact, he's pointing out it's exactly the opposite. You don't get the right to tell me what to do, Paul's saying. He says, I therefore as an apostle am free, and I have authority over you in Corinth as the church. You're so fond of asserting your own liberty, Paul is saying, 
you know what? I cherish my liberty as well. And as an apostle, I need my liberty as a responsibility to rule in the church of Jesus Christ. So he's answering them right away. And he, he, he asks the question there, have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Now, you can kind of understand between the lines here, you can assume that someone was saying, no, we don't think you are an apostle, Paul. How can you be an apostle? Because Acts chapter 1 verse 22 says that to be an apostle, you have to see the resurrected Christ. You weren't one of the 12. Why should we believe your claim that you were an apostle? You can't be an apostle. And so he has to lay out an argument for his own apostleship. And that's the first thing he does here. He says, he speaks of the mark of apostleship. Comes back and he says, have I not seen the Lord Jesus Christ? Now that's a rhetorical question from Paul. It doesn't even deserve an answer. Of course he saw the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, I've seen him, he answers. See, the requirement of being an apostle this, in this sense, in the New Testament sense, sense, holding the office of an apostle, was you had to see the risen Lord. You had to see him physically. And we know from the books of Acts alone that the apostles saw the Lord Jesus risen in several occasions. Paul wasn't there. He wasn't even a believer at the time. Why would he be there? But we know that the Lord made a special trip just for Paul, or Saul, I should say, before he was Paul. So if you turn to Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, we're familiar with this Damascus Road conversion of Paul, so I'm not going to go through the whole text, but you can read it on your own, verses 1 to 19, if you're not familiar with it. But it talks about the conversion of Saul who was a Pharisee, and he was someone who was persecuting the church. And it says in verse 4, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he had this experience on the road to Damascus. By the way, he was going there to persecute Christians. That's what his intent was. And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the, the voice came back and it said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So we see from that text that he physically saw the Lord. He saw the Lord right there. And that's not the only place. In Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, it says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. So it wasn't just some audible voice, but he actually saw him because it says it was a vision. And then in Acts chapter 22, verses 17 to 21, there's another instance where it says he fell into a trance and he saw Jesus saying to him, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem. So three times the Apostle Paul saw the risen Lord. That's one of the marks of an apostle in the New Testament sense. They had to see the risen Lord. And so Paul was defending the fact that he had the mark of apostleship, that he had seen Jesus Christ our Lord. We well, also brings up the idea of the signs of an apostle. And this is important because there's a lot of people today in Christianity who are claiming to be apostles. You see it all the time. They give themselves that title. And 
it's unfortunate because they're not apostles in this sense. We're all, as Christians, apostles in the general sense. We're all set. We're all sent with a commission, but not in the New Testament sense. You have the mark of an apostle. You have to see the risen Lord. Secondly, you have the signs of an apostle in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, it says, the signs of a true apostle, Paul writes, were performed among you. So Paul is writing a second letter to the Corinthians, and he's saying, hey, don't forget, I was there among you as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I performed signs and miracles. He says, the signs of a true apostle, apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. Like I said, they were a little thick-headed sometimes, with signs and wonders and mighty works. See, he performed all this by the power of the Lord as an apostle in their presence. I mean, if anybody should have, not have doubts that Paul was an apostle, it should be the church at Corinth. But here they are. People were raising question of his apostleship. So he had the mark of an apostle. He had seen the risen Lord. He had the signs of an apostle, signs, wonders, mighty, great mighty works and miracles done. But he also mentions in our text, verse 2, at the end of verse 2, the seal of his apostleship, the seal of an apostle. He says there, you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Are you not my work in the Lord? See, what he's saying is, Corinthians, of all people, you should know that I'm an apostle. I labored among you. That's why there's a church there. Because I came and I, I, I set forth the gospel and people responded. I mean, if anybody should know that I'm an apostle, it should be you. Because I did miracles amongst you. I taught you the gospel. You came to Christ. All you have to do is look through Acts chapter 18 and you see that Paul founded this church. He probably literally led some of these believers to Christ in the first place. And now they're sitting back saying, well, we don't know if you're an apostle, Paul. See, they knew the truth. They themselves were his seal of apostleship. Or proof, you might say, that he was an apostle. Now, I don't care where people come from today as far as this idea, but we have to be very clear on this issue of apostleship in this sense, in the sense of the 12. Whatever theological camp people were from, whatever, they cannot be an apostle in that sense today. It just, it's not here. That office is not around today. So he speaks to them as a seal of his apostleship. Now remember, the, a seal in the ancient days, in the ancient times, was used on containers. It was used on, on merchandise, um, maybe a stamp or a letter, to indicate that there was some authenticity to what was inside the container or the envelope. Uh, it was stopped. It, it, it proved to stop people from tampering with the contents of something, if it was being shipped somewhere. If the seal was broken, you knew. It's kind of like you go to the store today. If you see the seal broken on a milk container or a ketchup bottle, you're probably not going to buy that bottle. You'll buy another one where the seal is intact. Even remember, the Roman authorities, what they do to Jesus' tomb? They put a seal on the tomb. So Paul is saying, you who are doubting me are the very proof the authenticity, the seal that I am an apostle to the Gentiles. And because of that, in verse 3, he says, this is my defense. 
So he lists out these things, and then he goes on the defense. He says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Now, this isn't really a reference to what, to what follows, to what comes after this. It's really a reference to what has come before. <laughs> this word, examine, it was a legal term in the original language, and, and, it, and it was a term for investigation or inquiry made before a decision was reached in a case. So what he's saying is, my answer to those who doubt my apostleship, who examine me spiritually, forensically, like in a law court, my answer to this is you. <laughs> I was here before and I did the work. Go back, remember. That's what he's saying. Now there's never going to be another apostle like the original apostles, including Paul. I don't care where they come from or what theological camp. They can call themselves apostles all day long. They're not in this biblical sense. Because I can guarantee you they probably didn't see the risen Lord. And they're probably not out working miracles and all these things that the apostles did. Now remember the context of Paul's letter here to the church of Corinth. It was written by Paul the apostle to the church at Corinth. Now we can never... Uh, reciprocate what Paul is saying here and owning it as his own because guess what? We're not apostles today in that sense. But we can draw some practical general evidences, not maybe of an apostle, but in a more practical way of an authentic worker, of an authentic servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can take it from Paul's example. He gives basically two evidences here of an authentic worker or server of Jesus Christ. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, verse 1, he talks about having seen the Lord Jesus Christ. Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? In other words, what he's saying is, I have an experience with the risen Lord. Something that I've experienced. Now, it's an experience of faith, clearly, this is when Paul's life was transformed. This is when Paul's life changed by the glorious gospel of Christ. So he's speaking here of being born again. That's elementary. But you know what? There's a lot of people today who are, quote, in ministry, who may or may not have had an experience with Christ. So you have to Realize that just because someone stands behind a pulpit and opens a Bible and says some things, that doesn't alone legitimize their experience of faith with Christ. We see that all the time with televangelists. They're out there fleecing the flock of their money. Even here recently, I heard, read an article the other day of Jim Baker. He's back, oh, we gotta go off the air. We gotta, people have to send in money and there's some fraud things involved. Who knows what's involved? But here, he's speaking, I think, more than just that salvation experience. He's not just saying, yeah, remember I was on the road to Damascus and I had that experience with Jesus. He's not just saying that. He's talking about a more present tense, a more everyday event in our lives. Having a living, vital relationship a communion 
with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's speaking of. He's not just talking about some event that happened in our past years ago. But he's kind of like saying, hey, what has Jesus done for you lately? <laughs> How are you living each day for his glory, for his honor? So you have to have that experience of Jesus Christ. That covers the faith aspect. But there's a second step here. There's another side to the coin, you might say. And that is fruitful work for Christ. Fruitful work for Christ. So you have faith on one hand, that born-again experience, but then you have, after you're born again, you, you see the fruit of Christ in your life. The second thing is fruitful work for Christ. That's why he says there in the text, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? He says that there at the end of, of verse one. Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? On the one hand, you have faith, you have the experience, the born again experience, the conversion, the transformation by God's glorious grace. Saul, Saul experienced that. Now we call him Paul when he was on the road to Damascus. And on the other side of his conversion, you could see fruit in his life. He no longer persecuted the church. Now he preached the gospel. There was a dynamic change in his life. And so if there's two marks of an authentic servant and worker for the Lord Jesus Christ, it's those two. Faith on one hand, but that's backed up by fruit. Faith and fruit. And that's why the reason, that's one of the reasons why Paul could come in here as a, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ with great authority to the Corinthian church. Not just as an apostle, but of the very fact that he knew Christ in a personal way and that Christ changed his life. It was very obvious that he knew Christ. He had been bearing fruit for Christ at this time, so he could be dogmatic as he stood before the Corinthian church and taught them the truth of the gospel. To put it another way, he knew what he believed and he stood up and he proclaimed it. And what he believed, he believed with authority. And he saw fruit from proclaiming what he believed with authority. I mean, that's a, a dynamic picture of someone who's authentic in the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I wonder why there's so little passion in our pulpits today. So little passion for the, the truth of the word of God as, as pastors open up the Bible. Well, that's probably the first problem. They're not opening the Bible. They're not opening the scriptures. They're up there teaching some fancy brand of their own how to get healthier, wealthier, wise. Why is there so little conviction among the saints of God and among the men and even women today who open the word of God and preach it from its pages? Where's the passion? I mean, if you look at this great man of God, the Apostle Paul, I just wonder why perhaps we have so little passion in the pulpits today as men teach the word of God. Well, that's probably the first problem. They're not, they're not teaching the word of God. I can't tell you how many times we have visitors come to our church and 
when I greet them after the service, they always say, boy, it's so, if they're a first-time visitor, they say, it's so great to be in a church that teaches from the Bible. And when the pastor says, turn in your Bibles, people actually are turning pages. Wow, it's not just up on some screen somewhere. And so Paul wants them to know, without a doubt, that he has had this experience, that he has experienced faith in Christ, that he has seen the fruit of God in his life. Why don't we see that today? Maybe they don't have an authentic experience with Christ. Maybe that's why. Maybe they don't have an authentic experience of the truths that they teach. It always cracks me up. You see these faith healers on TV and occasionally, you know, they're telling, them how, telling everybody how healthy and wealthy they are and how God's healed everything and, and then they put on their glasses. I'm like, wow, I guess God missed that one, huh? See, not only in experience of Christ, what Paul is trying to say, it's not just a one-time deal. Oh, I, got, I covered that. I got saved. I was born again. But he, he wants them to know that you have to have a fruitful work for Christ. On the one hand, you have faith. On the other, you have fruit. Maybe... We don't have any passion because these truths have never been borne out in our own lives. Maybe we haven't seen fruit in our lives. One theologian once said, don't deal in untrafficked truth. Don't deal in untrafficked uh, truth. What did he mean by that? He, He basically was saying, Don't be telling other people to do things that you're not prepared to do yourself. There's a lot going on of that in churches today. I think it was Vance Havner who said this, I read of a man who had studied Arabic until he could read it fluently. But he couldn't even go down to the local coffee shop and speak it fluently to get order a cup of coffee. See, he could sit down and read it all day long, but he couldn't speak it. Today we have in our churches people who have a head full of theology without any testimony of actual experience. There was once a a famous writer. He wrote about medicine and all these things and he studied medicine. He was absolutely brilliant, this guy. He was very good at dissecting corpses, dead bodies, looking at the anatomy and the the physiology of the human form, all that stuff. But you know what? He didn't like working with living people. See, there are those who enjoy their theology, but they're dead. They're dead. They don't see that experience fleshing out in their lives. They'll sit down and read books all day long. But you ask them to go to talk to someone about Christ or pray with someone, oh, I don't do that. See, seeing that experience of Christ born out in the fruit of your life for Christ every day, every hour, that's what Paul is saying we should see. See, the Apostle Paul wasn't somebody who just sat up in his ivory tower and read his theological books every day. He says here, have I not seen Christ Jesus our Lord? He understands what it means to be transformed by his power. 
even it's borne out in the in the book of James where it says faith without works is what is dead you have to have both of them you can't just be holding on to some experience back here and then nothing's going on in your life today there's a problem there it should be an ongoing changing ongoing transformation well, the other thing the Corinthians were trying to do, they were trying to take the Apostle Paul and put him into a certain way of living. They wanted him to live a certain way. They were saying basically, well, if you're really an Apostle Paul, then you should live like this. If you're a servant of God, then you should do this or you should do that. They were trying to deprive him of rights that were normally available to the normal human being. They were kind of putting him on a pedestal or a pinnacle. We do that a lot today in Christianity. And there's certain people within the church at times that, you know, they feel it's their right to legislate to their leaders or their leaders' families what they should do and what they shouldn't do. Now, we're to be held account for our behavior, don't get me wrong. But a lot of times when they come up with these things, they don't apply them to their own lives. It's, it's important to remember that, you know what, we, we can't be doing that. A lot of times people will look at, at certain individuals and make a judgment call, but then they, well, you don't do that in your life. Well, that's different. Well, no, it's really not. See, if you're not prepared to deny yourself where perhaps you expect others to deny themselves. There's something wrong with that. And the point here, Paul is saying, although I'm an apostle, I'm entitled to the same privileges and the joys the rest of you have in Christ. These are my rights. That's what he's putting forth. So he's not just proving his authenticity, but he's really maintaining his liberty. He's maintaining his liberty in verses 4 to 6. He begins to ask questions about rights, about his own personal rights. And the answers, again, are they're so obvious, these are rhetorical questions, it's almost like he's being sarcastic. The first one there in verse 4, what's he say? He says, do we not have the right to eat and drink? I mean, that's pretty basic. They must have been treating him pretty bad. Do we not have the right to food and drink as we minister the gospel to you? He's saying, are you going to starve us? Are you going to make us thirst to death, to death before giving us anything? As we give you eternal words of salvation, you're going to really treat us this way? And this is what was happening. In verse 5, he asks another question. He says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? as do the other apostles and the brothers of, our, of the Lord and Cephas or Peter? Don't we have the right to bring a believing wife along with us like the other apostles? Say we're going on a missionary journey. I mean, maybe the, the church back then thought, well, if they bring the family, that's going to cost us more, so leave the family at home. We see a lot of that in churches today, don't we? You invite a special speaker. Well, are you going to bring your family, or are we just going to buy one ticket, or are we going to buy all three? That's how we think. That's not right. That's incorrect thinking. A couple things here, just to point out in verse 5, he says, first of all, this sister or wife 
is to be a believer. Note that. There's not to be any unequally yoked marriages. And it applies to an apostle. It applies to believers. If you're going to consider a wife, young person, and you're single, or a husband for that matter, make sure they're a sister or a brother in the Lord. There's no option there. Secondly, it's interesting that here he mentions Cephas or Peter and being raised Roman Catholic, I always wondered where they got the idea that a priest had to be celibate. Here you have the, uh, the Apostle Paul saying that the other apostles had wives and they brought them along. Why can't we? And even Peter did. That's what, that's what he said. And the word Cephas is the Aramaic word for Peter. Uh, they're claim of the first pope. Well, he brought his wife along with them. Maybe they missed that. I don't know. So Paul says, don't we have that right? It's interesting because the last time we were studying through 1 Corinthians, we were talking about some of these things, about marriage and how in the days in the, that we're living in now with the coming of the Lord Jesus even closer, Paul says, maybe you should, if you're married, you should live as though you have not you're not married. Why? What's he meant? What did he mean by that? Well, he meant don't let your marriage, don't let your family be a distraction to your ministry because we're, the days are crucial. Well, this is a, a great way to get around that. What was happening is some of the, the people who were in ministry weren't taking their wives with them. And so there was a, well, I don't know if I want to leave my wife at home. So there was a hesitation to minister. Well, this is a great way around that. Just take your wife with you. That's a, a pretty smart thing to do. And then thirdly, in verse 6, he says, or only I and Barnabas, are we the ones that, are the only ones that have to work? We don't have any right to refrain from working for a living? In other words, these other apostles that have come through here, Corinth, you supported them, and now you're balking at supporting me? Wait a minute, what do you, why are you doing that? You're questioning my apostleship because I, maybe I make tents on the side so I don't have to bear a load to the church? Now, hear me on this. There are churches who don't support their pastors or their workers. God forgive them for that. And some evidently thought here that at least... Paul's refusal to take any payment for his services as a minister, that somehow he actually lacked the rights. He wasn't worthy of the rights. I mean, they were looking at the other apostles who came through, and they all said, oh, well, we'll, we'll come through, but you've got to take up an offering, or you've got to do this, or you've got to do that. Paul didn't do any of that. And they basically said, if Paul doesn't demand a wage from us like the other apostles do, and by the way, he brought his... He didn't bring his wife along with him like the rest of the apostles do. Well, that, doesn't, that means that he doesn't have those rights. And if they're the rights of an apostle, well, maybe he's not an apostle. Do you see where they're going with their thinking? He pointed to this fact that though, although he supported himself making tents to provide for the needs not only of himself but for other brothers and sisters in the Lord. He did this out of grace. 
He still had the right to be fed at their table and to be paid from their offerings. Just because he chose to opt out of that, it doesn't mean that it wasn't his right to do it. Why did he step aside from these rights? Well, he stepped aside from these rights for the greater good of the gospel. He was more concerned for the good of the gospel than having a wife or than getting paid by a church. I mean, after chapter 8, when we went through that, he's talking about our rights and how we're to give them up and, and that we should do it for the betterment of the body. And now it's almost like in a legalistic lawyer way, he's going through and he's listing why he has the rights that he has. And you say, why is he doing this? He's doing it to show them that he has certain rights that he didn't activate. He has certain rights that he forgo. He, he, he didn't want to do. Why? So that they may come to Christ. And now they're holding them, that very thing against him. You know, sometimes you see this in politics a lot. Someone will say something or do something. Or maybe they won't take a salary, but they'll still serve the country. And then they get criticized for it. It's crazy. That's what was going on here. Look at what he says here in verse 12. He's running ahead a little bit here, but he says, Nevertheless, we have not used this power or these rights, but endure all things, lest we put an obstacle out there for the gospel. See, it's very clear. The Bible is very clear. If you're going to give up a career, if you're going to give up your job to serve the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul is saying here that you have a right to be supported. That's simply what he's saying. But he's also saying there are, there are times that you should not demand your rights at the expense of the gospel. And so you see how this principle back in chapter 8 is being illustrated through the life of Paul himself. And I think it's a very refreshing thing for the church to look at today because we really live in a, a, a yucky world in Christian ministry today where everybody's concerned about how much they're going to get for whatever they're going to do. See, Paul did not see himself as being employed by the church or by anybody else. He saw himself as being called Big difference. Big difference. When a pastor simply, or an elder, or a church member, a staff member, views himself, well, I'm just employed by the church. That changes the whole way you look at your ministry. But when you know that God has called you to that ministry, it doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. You can always tell when you're interviewing a speaker, potential speaker, visiting speaker at your church. I've gone through this for many years and sometimes I've called individuals and asked them, hey, would you be willing to come and speak at our church? I've had some brothers respond affirmatively without even asking a question about finance, about the size of the church. And I'm always thankful for those people. One, because we have a small church. 
But two, it, it shows you their heart. And then you get some other people on the phone and, well, what are we talking? How, how, how many times do you want me to speak? How many people are going to be there? How much are you going to pay me every time I speak? And by the way, I'll send you a, uh, a brief on, on what's required when I get there. What kind of hotel room I need. What kind of class ticket I need to get there on the airplane. What kind of water I want. I mean, sometimes it's ridiculous. It's like they're movie stars or something. Don't get me wrong. We always want to take care of the people that come and minister here in our church. And we do. But usually it's people that never demand it. Those are the people that get a lot more as a result of their service. He didn't want to use his position, Paul is saying, for profit. But he found greater joy in service, in sacrifice, greater joy in laying down his life, forgoing his own rights. You might say he wasn't in the, if the price is right, ministry. Sometimes I feel that's how some of these guys think. Well, if the price is right, I could come out there to California and speak in your church. It's like, no, thanks. And there's abuses on both sides of that issue, by the way. There are churches today that are starving their pastors and their staff. Thank God I'm not in a church like that. I'm very well taken care of, cared for here, loved, prayed for, provided for. But there are churches out there that don't support their, their staff members, their workers, when they have the ability to do it. God forgive them. One traveling evangelist, itinerant pastor, said that in his early years, people were always asking about finances. He would travel around from church to church. And he always replied the same, I leave that with the brethren. <laughs> but then he followed up and he said, and I really did. For when I left that church, the brethren Still had it, speaking as far as the offering goes. He got very little for his services. On the other hand, there are those who not only withhold what is due, the ministers of Christ, but unfortunately today in Christianity, there are preachers and workers and missionaries who are literally fleecing the flock. They're sponging off congregations, and they don't have the wherewithal to do what they're called to do because they're probably not called. Yet they're demanding their rights as if they were. There's a lot of churches, congregations today that are left without pastors or without shepherds because they can't keep up with his lifestyle. What's Paul saying to all this? He's saying, you know what? You're not seeing what really suffers. Yeah, on certain occasions, Pastors take advantage of congregations. On other occasions, congregations take advantage of pastors. But that's irrelevant, he's saying. What really suffers, his point is, what really suffers is the gospel ultimately suffers. I mean, pray that we would see that greater picture. That all this politicking and arguing and going back and forth within churches today... The gospel suffers. So he proves his authenticity. He maintains his liberty. 
But now in verses 7 to 14, what's he do? He defends his entitlement. He finally gets there. He's finally willing to put out what he's entitled to. And he begins in verse 7 to build this case further. And he appeals here to seven pieces of evidence. He's going to do it like a lawyer would in a court of law. He's here to prove why it's his right to have a wage. Verse 7. His first argument, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? He begins to ask all these questions. One, one pastor titled his sermon for this chapter, Questions, Questions, Questions. You count them up. There's a lot of questions in this chapter, so that's true. But here are the rhetorical questions. They're very obvious. The answers are obvious. They stare, them right, stare us right in the face. And the first thing that he does is he defends his rights in three ways from customs that were common to the people of his day. The first one, he defends his right by the illustration or the allegory of warfare. He gives a military illustration. Who goes to war at any time and pays his own way? Now, that never happens. Very seldom does that happen. You don't enlist somebody in the army and say, oh yeah, by the way, did you buy your machine gun yet? Do you have your grenades? Do you have your uniform? Don't get me wrong. I know military people have to buy uniforms and sometimes at great expense. But initially, when they first go in, they're given a uniform. They're given a weapon. They don't pay their own air passage to their first deployment. They don't go to war at their own expense. They don't have to work another job at night because, you know, they'll be out on the street. No, they're provided housing and, and care. Why? Because their service is for the country. And so the country pays their way. That's why it's called military service. A lot of people say, well, why don't the military get paid more? Because it's called military, military service. That's what they do. They serve the country. So you can see where he's going here. Then he talks about, secondly, not just a, a person who would go to war, but he says, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? He brings up the idea of a farmer, someone who's a, a vine dresser. You know, you don't see a person who owns a whole winery going to Costco and buying a crate, crate, uh, a crate of grapes. Why? Because they have them right there in their backyard. That'd be ridiculous. And he says the same thing about a shepherd. Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? I mean, you have a, a, a milkman built into your flock. Why would you go hire a milkman to bring you milk every day if you had sheep or cattle or goats? Whatever gives you milk. So he talks about shepherds. And, you know, he talks about this. And, and this is all part of their culture. They clearly understood the argument he was making. He's using local customs to prove a common sense argument that he that lives for the gospel ought to live off the gospel. And just as people in the world have a right to a career and have a right to a job to make a living of their own, well, a Christian who forsakes all that 
and chooses to serve the church and serve Christ should be provided for by those Christians. And by the way, I don't think the illustration here should get lost. He, he uses the picture of a soldier, someone who's going into war. That, that speaks of someone who has courage and loyalty, dedication, someone who's willing to endure hardship. Marks of, a, of authentic service for the Lord. Someone who's going to be supported by the children of God. They're called to be courageous and loyal, and dedicated to endure hardship. So he uses these illustrations in a way that common sense shows you what his answers are. And then in verse 8, he points out, he says, do I say these things on human authority? Do I say these things as a man? See, there was a lot of people in the Corinthian church that were kind of, you know, very self-righteous, hyper-spiritual people. And so when he would use illustrations like that, they had a tendency to say, oh, that's worldly. You can't say that, Paul. And that's why he says, do I say these things as a man? Is it merely me up here as a human being speaking in front of you? Or does God confirm this in his law? And so he defends his right by the law of Moses even. You notice there in your Bible, if you have a good Bible, it'll tell you that he's really quoting from Deuteronomy 25.4. For it is written in the law of Moses, thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. That's from Deuteronomy 25.4. He uses a picture of a soldier, but here he speaks of the, the law of God. I mean, thank God we're not still under the law. But don't think for a moment that the law is something that's bad. It's still the word of God. Because the same God that's behind the Old Testament law is the same God that you can find compassion in the bosom of Jesus with. And what he's really pointing out, even that old law that condemns to death so many sinners, even that old law has compassion to protect that old ox that's treading on the corn. How much more should the church protect and provide those that serve the church? It reminds me of the Lord Jesus Christ when he said, He's speaking of God caring for us. And he says, you know what? Even the God of heaven takes note of a little sparrow that jumps from branch to branch on a tree. Concern for that little sparrow. How much more will he be concerned for you? And what Paul is saying here, look at the end of verse, verse 9. He says, uh, is it for oxen that God is concerned? He quotes that verse, and then he says, don't think I'm, I'm saying that God's just concerned for the oxen. He's going to take care of the oxen, but there's a bigger picture here. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care for the oxen. We know he does because he cares for sparrows. But what he's saying is that the point God is really getting at here, God is undergirding a principle that is bigger than just farming. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. Now, if you know anything about treading out grain, there's different ways that they could do it. There were times when they'd take the stalks of grain and they'd spread them all over this hard uh, floor, threshing floor it was called, and they would usually use an ox or a horse maybe, and uh, the horse would drag a weighted 
board across the grain. And usually they would just go around in a circle and they would drag it around there several times and that's threshing out the grain. It would cause the grain to be crushed. But there were other times where kind of a simple setup would you would just have a simple animal, a horse or an oxen in this case, um, tied to a pole and he would walk around the grain and just the mere impact of his uh, hooves on the grain would crush the grain. And what this is speaking of is the law is saying that a farmer isn't to muzzle the oxen while he's threshing the grain. While he's walking around in your, your threshing floor helping you thresh out this grain, don't put a muzzle on them. In other words, allow the ox to go down, be able to bend down and, and grab some grain, a mouthful of grain, every couple trips around. That's what it's saying. And so he's pointing out, he says, doesn't God take care of the oxen? He has this law in place for an oxen. Don't you think that he's, he's saying this for your sake? See, it's for our sakes that even this old law was given. And he sums it up there in verse, the end of verse 10. If you look at it, he says, does he not speak, speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope. Of what? That he would share in the crops. That's going to change his whole attitude if he's out there plowing a field. If you're just plowing a field and you're not going to get anything for it, you're not going to do a very good job. But if you're plowing a field and there's hope that you will reap some of the benefit or the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. See, those that are threshing or those that are helping in that venue should share in the harvest. That's fair. And I think sometimes there's, there's double standards going on in churches. There's standards that Paul points out to Timothy. People were real quick to have people come in and teach them and, and, and bless them spiritually with the word of God. And then when they left, they left. They didn't benefit them at all. They didn't help them at all. They didn't take up an offering. They didn't do anything for them. See, that's, that's not right. That's what it says in uh, First Timothy there, well, verse 11, it says, have we not sown onto you spiritual things? Is it a great thing if we reap your carnal things? In Timothy, he tells, he tells Timothy basically that, you know what, uh, this not ought to be. You shouldn't, shouldn't take advantage of teachers. The one who labors among you in the word ought to be due of double honor, he tells Timothy. So he's, he's basically telling in verse 11, you know what, we, we sowed spiritual seeds into you. Surely we have the right to reap some material harvest from you being blessed. He's setting the spiritual and the material in contrast to each other. He's basically saying, look, we're giving you eternal life-giving words as we teach you. And you're not going to feed us? Come on. You're not going to provide for us? Wait a minute. That's not right. So in verse 12, he indicates that these Corinthians, they were supporting other workers that weren't even laboring among them. Now notice in verse 12, 12, he says, 
If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more so? Paul's saying, look, I founded this church. Really, I'm the reason you're here. And you're going to question my authority? He's building up a pretty strong case here. And he comes to the climax in the second part of verse 12. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's he saying? We had a right to all this, but you know what? We surrendered it. Why did we surrender it? Because we didn't want an obstacle to be in your way. We didn't want you to be pointing at Paul saying, oh, look it, he's taking another offering, but not listening to what I say to you. He didn't want it to be a distraction. He didn't, do, he didn't give up his rights just to, so people could look at him and say, oh, wow, what a gracious guy. What a big guy Paul is. No. He says he's willing to suffer, endure, the word is, all things for the sake of the gospel. That word endure, stego, means to pass over in silence. He's saying, you know what? I put up with not being given enough food on the table. I put up with not given enough drink to quench my thirst. I put up with having to work on tents on my own time, with my own hands, for my own needs, and by the way, the needs of others, because I blessed others with that, and I suffered in silence. Why did I do this? That I would not hinder the gospel. That's why. See, we need to hear this today. How many of us would pay our own way to preach the gospel? Think about that one. I know I have. The Christian worker is not to be seen as a wage earner. Someone who's given his life to the ministry of Jesus Christ is not to be seen as an employee. He says he did this not to hinder the gospel. That word hinder has the idea of a, of a surgical term, making an incision. He says, I didn't want to cut into the, the body of Christ to such an extent that it would wound the gospel. At all costs, he was trying to avoid any impression that he was there amongst them for financial gain. He defended it by precedent. But now, he defends it by the priesthood. In verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those that share and those that serve at the altar share in the sacrificial, sacrificial offerings? What's he saying? He's saying, you know what? The priests that serve at the temple, the Levites, they got their food from their ministry. They shared in what had been sacrificed at the altar. And so he says there's the defense of the priesthood. I can bring that up to you. But lastly, he says in verse 14, which is... Really interesting. He says, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. The Lord did say this on several occasions in Matthew 10.10. 10. He basically uh, says a, a, a workman is worthy of his meter, his wages. In Luke 10.7, that the laborer is worthy of his hire. I mean, 
He was defended by the Lord himself. So he, he defended, he laid out this case, and he said, you know what? I'm defended, my rights are defended by warfare, by farming, by shepherding, by the law, by precedent, by the priesthood, and even by the Lord himself. And yet in the end, guess what? He didn't claim any of these rights. Not one. Why? Because of the simple fact that a Christian worker, a Christian minister, is not to be seen as a wage earner. But he's to be seen as someone who's called by God. Now, in conclusion, I just want to draw out a couple things here. Paul had authority that none of us can ever dream of having. (laughs) No modern worker or preacher or missionary has this kind of authority. Yet we ought to submit to his authority apostolic authority that we find here. There's a couple ways we can do that. First of all, we should support our Christian workers. I thank you for, as a church, supporting the ministry that you've entrusted me with here. And I thank you for supporting those that come and minister here in this pulpit. We're always very gracious with those who come and share the word of God with us. It's up to us to support these folks. They're serving the Lord. Secondly, we need to realize that expressing our freedom in Christ, even though it's our right, it's our liberty in Christ, sometimes that may hinder the gospel. We need to be aware of that. Thirdly, we need to understand that lost souls, this is so important, lost souls are more important than our rights. We always want to do things to reach people for Christ. And if that means giving up some of our liberty in Christ as a result, so be it. And the last thing is we need to cultivate our our love for others that motivates us to place their need for the gospel above our desire for freedom and rights. That's why I like Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul says there, Jesus was in the form of God, the morphe of God, Yet he thought it not something to be grasped, held on to is the idea. But he made himself of no reputation. He lowered himself. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, even to the point of death on a cross. See, he, the Christ, did not grasp his own deity. He had it, but he didn't revel in its privileges while he was here on earth. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Let me close with the illustration of a Moravian missionary. There's a story told of these, this one missionary who was in the West Indies. And no matter what he tried to do, he could not reach this certain group of people. And he tried hard. They were out in the fields. They were slaves, and so they were out in the fields all day. And at night, he would come to these slaves' homes and he would try to share the gospel with them. But they were so tired from working all day that they just couldn't comprehend it. They weren't receptive to it. They just wanted to go to bed because they knew they had to get up the next day and work hard in the fields. And he tried every plan he could to reach these people. And one day while he was reading Romans 12, verse 1, it just jumped off the page where Paul says, talks about being 
offering your body as a living sacrifice. Well, he took, tra dra he took drastic action. You know what he did? He sold himself <laughs> into slavery. He contacted one of the plantation owners and says, I want to become a slave. They thought he lost his mind. And every day, he was picked up with the other workers and shuttled out to the fields where he worked side by side with these slaves he was trying to reach. Guess what? He could finally speak to them. And they finally had time. They were a captive audience. He was there beside them working as a slave just like they were. See, he set aside his right of freedom for the sake and the cause of Christ and the gospel. This is very convicting. For me personally, how much do we do that? How much are we willing to set aside our rights for the gospel? C.T. Studd, a wonderful missionary to India and China and other places, Africa, he's quoted as saying this, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Let me read that again. If Jesus Christ be God and he died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. I pray that that's what's on our heart. I pray that we will be willing to forego our rights, even though we have them, our liberties in Christ, for the sake of the gospel, that others may come to know Christ. You know, if you're listening to this message today and you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, I pray that you would do that today. I pray that you would cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. The Bible tells me clearly all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all mess up. We all do things that are not honoring to God. And yet God has provided provision for that sin so that we could be made right with our God and creator. And that provision was his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who went to the cross, died a cruel death, was buried. But guess what? On the third day, he rose again, as we just celebrated a couple weeks ago. He rose again victorious over sin and death for you and for me. So that we put our faith, our trust in his work on the cross, in his shed blood, he forgives us. And the Bible says he makes us white as snow. He washes our sins away. We're forgiven. Not just our current sins, our past sins, our present sins, our future sins. Praise the Lord that he has made that provision for you and for me. Doesn't take much to cry out to God from a sincere heart and ask for his forgiveness. He wants to forgive you today. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for Paul's illustrations and his example and his questions, frankly. And Lord, we, we know that our lives should be given to you every moment, every hour given over to you for the, the sake of souls coming to Christ. Lord, we pray for our nation. We pray for our world during this pandemic. We pray that those who are sick may have someone come across their path with the gospel of Christ, that they will respond affirmatively. 
Lord, we pray for those families who may have lost loved ones during this time. Even if it wasn't because of the COVID virus, Lord, we know that it's a difficult time. You can't really have a funeral. You can't do a lot of different things that you could normally. We pray that your grace would be sufficient for them. We pray for our president and vice president that you would bless them with your wisdom and not their own, that they would know when the right time is to open up the economy again. We pray for our local leaders as well. Lord, we pray that people wouldn't take advantage of this politically. Lord, now's not the time for that. But Lord, that they would want to get people back to work. And Father, we pray for those who may be listening today who yet to put their faith, their trust in you. Lord, you're our only hope of salvation. I pray that you would bless them with your salvation. Bless them with repentance. Cause them to turn from their sin to you, the Savior. Pray that we would be positive witnesses in our community, in our places of employment. Lord, that we would be pointing people to the Savior. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen.